Welcome to the Medical Management Podcast, a podcast focused on helping you level up your practice. Through interviews with some of the most successful leaders in the industry, we help uncover resources, tools, and ideas to help you level up your practice. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's program. Hello, and welcome to the Medical Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Arnoldson. Today, I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Donna Bergman, who's the Director of Population Health for St. Luke's Health Partners here in Boise, Idaho. Hey, Donna, welcome. Hey, Jesse. Good to be with you again. Yeah, I'm so excited for this conversation. For our listeners, Donna and I met six, seven years ago in Pocatello when we were both doing some work for Portniff Medical Center. Mine was more on the the grunt side (laughs) as an intern, but it gave me a chance to get to know Donna and, and, and get this feeling for... I don't know how better to describe it, but somebody frustrated by the system and wanting to to enact big change. And so we've continued to be friends. And as we've both moved over to the the Boise side of the state, those same feelings continue. And so we're gonna we're gonna dive into it a little bit, get into a little bit more of the nitty-gritty of what we think we can do to enact big change on healthcare. I wanted to maybe kick things off as as way of introduction, Donna. You know, what got you into practice management specifically? So fell into healthcare, but practice management was not something I ever thought I would do. I was actually working for the payer side and my job was provider relations. And I spent a lot of time in a lot of different clinics helping practices figure out how to become more effective, more efficient within the terms of the contracts. And I was on the pair side, we went from capitation to fee-for-service, if that gives you an idea of my age. <laughs> and what brought me over to practice management is I got recruited. They felt like I could do more on the practice side than the payer side. And I was recruited by an occupational medicine group. Uh, it was fantastic. I remember the first day walking in asking where I could eat my lunch. And, and the gals up front says, you're the boss, so you eat it wherever you want to eat. That's awesome. And I realized from that day, I, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. But I think that made me a better practice manager because I had to ask a lot of questions and learn a lot. I love that. Practice management is definitely a, a humbling career choice. It definitely helps you realize that you're not everything that you think you're cracked up to be or you don't have all the answers, right? Definitely do not have all the answers. And I th- I was there for seven years and they still shocked me. Almost, almost daily. We had a good time. I learned a lot. It was fantastic people. Fantastic clinical model too. That's awesome. Donna, tell me, what do you think your your greatest benefit was coming into practice management with your payer background? Like what did, what did that help you with the most? The payer background, this is part of probably, I've got that little bit of a chip on my shoulder. The payer background for me showed me that they're a necessary evil. When I first came in, I was so frustrated with the payer partner. And I, I will call him a partner today. I did not then. And I was so frustrated with the payer relationship and the practice relationship. So initially, it really didn't bring any value to me. It hindered me. But the more I got into practice management, the more I realized that they really do need to be your partner. You know, you spent two years saying, I came out of the dark side, I'm done, right? Right. But once you get through that fog, you realize that there is a connection that they have with employers. They have a connection 
with patients, their members that you don't have. But if you work together and get loud, get loud with your payer partners. If you simply take what they give you, you're not really a partner in that. Right. Tell them what you bring that's valuable and leverage what they have and you'll have a good partnership. I love that. I've recently been able to kind of develop a better relationship with one of our biggest payers in our payer mix here in Idaho. And it's resulted in a lot of benefit for our clinic. And we're just, I mean, Thrive Pediatrics is a pretty small clinic in comparison to some of these other behemoths in the state. There's really not any reason on paper to pay attention to us or to to do anything for us other than just pay the claims that we're contracted to receive. But that relationship building and viewing them as a partner and engaging them in different ways is the way in. It's the golden ticket in to, to it working is. with them. And in, I wish it wouldn't have taken me so long coming out of that transition to figure that out. Yeah. Because I think understanding that and you, you've seen it, it really does propel your practice forward. Amen. Well, let's talk a little bit about the main topic today. Let's get into the meat of it. Like I said in your introduction, I, since I've known you, there's always been this kind of, you know, quote unquote, chip on your shoulder about how things are done and the real, the real impact that clinics have or and can have on on patients. It's one of the things that just draws me to you as a peer and a friend, but tell me a little bit more about what really bothers you in our current system. So that's such a loaded question, Jesse. So loaded. There's so much. (laughs) I've been doing this for 25 years. I'm not even sure at this point I'm any good at it because we're still in the same spot. Right, right. We continue to talk about the same things. We sometimes give it different names. That's my favorite. Mm-hmm. But we really haven't fundamentally changed how we deliver care. We've layered on technology, EMRs, even the practice management systems that we have now are so much more robust than what we had 25 years ago. Right. But we're still doing it the same way. When I think about this chip on my shoulder, this is where it comes down to. You and I, we're in healthcare. Whether we want to admit it or not, we're treated special. We know the back roads. We know how to get things done. Several weeks ago, my brother called me about my dad. He's 92 years old. They live a thousand miles away. He's trying to access healthcare. I get a dissertation on email on how he can't get a hold of the doctor. The doctor ordered the wrong x-ray. They drove 45 minutes into this from a rural community into town to get this work done. And once he got there and waited and waited and waited, he still couldn't get his test done. My brother was incredibly frustrated. I solved it in 10 minutes plus 25 years of experience. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Why do we make it so hard for a 92-year-old to get the care that he needed? And for my brother, God love him, he didn't know who to call. He didn't know how to push this issue. That's not right. And that's really the chip on my shoulder. Healthcare should be easier. You manage pediatrics with Thrive, right? Right. We do so much stuff with pediatrics. We engage the family. We make it convenient. We're available. You hit 18 and something happens. Go to the emergency department. My office closed at four. Wow. It's not right. No. No. So, yeah, I got a chip on my shoulder. In the best way. I believe it can be so much better. It can be. I love that you pointed out pediatrics because that is a focus of ours to make it as accessible and convenient as possible. You know, if you want to text us, we have a way for that. You want to talk to a triage nurse, we can we can handle that. You want to call at 3 a.m. on Sunday morning to avoid an ER visit? Heck yeah, you know. And so we we try our best. It's not perfect, but boy, 
you're right. We try harder than a lot of or most other specialties, I think. And maybe people can be grumpy about it. <laughs> we you know, we uh, get it at both ends. Yeah, yeah. We get it in pediatrics and we get it in the hospice care. Right. Hospice right. and before that palliative care is exceptional. Why can't we make that level of care, that level of compassion, that level of access in the middle? How do we do it? That's, that's where this is heading. Paint me a picture of what, you know, the, this change that you're, you're describing. Paint what it looks like in an ideal world. I think there, you need to start with how do you even approach this? Because I think the way that we've approached this problem in years past is leading to the same results. We look at our payer partners and we look at how we are paid. And then we value engineer our business model to meet the contract, which by the way, when the contract changes in two, three, four, five years, we get ticked because we have to change our business model. Right, yeah. So it's the tail wagging the dog. So first start with your model, not your business model, your clinical model. Start with the clinical vision. If we're quiet long enough, the doctors will tell us, the NPs, the PAs, your social workers, they will all tell us what we need to do for our patients. As administrators, it's our job to figure out how to get paid to do that, which brings back that payer partner, right? Because our relationship with the payers today is, hey, payer, what can you pay me for this? Here, provider, here's your fee-for-service payment. And then we take that to the doctor and we say, oh, and by the way, they'll pay for performance if you do jump through these flaming hoops. But that quality improvement thing you want to do or that screener, right. that, that question you want to ask or whatever activity, they're not going to pay for that. They're not going to pay for that. What was oh. going to generate an RVU, buddy? You're like, that's what we need to... <laughs> what would happen <laughs> if we flipped that in the air and we said, hey, this is our clinical model. We've built the business model. We now know what it's going to take to deliver on those services. Now, payer partner, I need you to pay me for this. And by the way, this is what's in it for you. So I'll bring it back to pediatrics. If your clinical vision is something that includes extended hours beyond the old banker hours of the 80s, so you're open until, say, 7 o'clock at night, you want to dispense medications, simple medications there and blend a same-day walk-in urgent care type of scenario. If you build that, at least on paper, you can back it up and then bring it to the payers and say, this keeps my kiddos out of the emergency room. That's what we want to do. And by the way, if I go to the emergency room with an ear infection and I say I've had six of them for my kiddo, better see an ENT. Let's keep that back in primary care where it belongs. Right. Donna, what you're describing sounds a little bit or a lot of bit like some of the ideas that you've pushed uh, my way about a, a clinic of the future. Can you maybe describe what it is that you have? You know, I think it's past the point of being just in your brain. I think it's probably down on paper, probably in proposal form. But tell me a little bit about this clinic of the future idea that you've you've been pitching around. So this idea started, uh, this is almost like a bad joke, Jesse. It, it started with you know, a burnt out physician, a tech genius, social worker, an administrator, myself, go into a bar. It was, <laughs> and we came out with this concept that we needed to radically change healthcare, not just slightly change, radically change because we're losing our physicians. They're burning out. 
I'm not sure if you're aware of it, the suicide rate among physicians, and this doesn't even extend in the, into COVID and, and the impact there. But prior to that, we were losing about 400 physicians a year on suicide. Oh, my gosh. We've got early retirements. They're not encouraging you know, their own kids to go into healthcare because it's not a great environment to work in. We had to fix that. We had to fix the idea that we don't have enough doctors. We can load a bunch of nurse practitioners and PAs, but at the end of the day, you're still very short on demand, on the supply-demand ratio. So we had to fix that. You can't just grow a bunch of providers. So we had to change the deployment methodology. So long story short, built a chassis that said, hey, what if we looked at all the healthcare that came into your clinics today and asked ourselves a really hard question? Does this require someone with MD, DO, PA, NP behind their name? And if the answer is no, then where does it go? I think for the last maybe 10, 12 years, we've been trying to push everything to NP, PAs. That's right. not enough. No. So I'm going to share a little bit about me just to illustrate this uh, example. So I'm going to be the patient. I'm going to make up a little bit about me. So for those of you listening, this is not a physical representation. This is fiction, guys. I'll give you my age, though. I'm not afraid of my age. I'm 49 years old. <laughs> but in this case, I'm going to be 200 pounds, um, not eating right. My husband, who is definitely still married going on 27 years. But in this example, we're going to say he just left me. And I've decided I need to jog because I don't know. It's, it's My daughter tells me it's a good thing to do. And my knees are killing me. In today's environment, when I go in to see my primary care physician, a couple of things are going to happen. Statistically, I got seven and a half minutes behind a closed door with the physician. God help me, I'm probably naked sitting on butcher paper with a paper gown. Awesome. That all sounds right. Statistically, 11 seconds into that encounter, I will be interrupted because the physician's in a hurry. So here's what's probably going to happen. I'm going to get focused on my knee pain. I will get a referral to an orthopedic surgeon. They will do probably an MRI. They might even schedule me to come back for a cortisone injection. Not that it's really going to do any good, but I could put a nice little thing out on Yelp that's not going to look very nice if they don't do something that I consider of value. Here's what didn't happen. Like I said, I'm 49 years old. Colonoscopy guidelines just changed. I'm now eligible and should have been recommended to get a colonoscopy now or a colon cancer screening because it went down to 45. Probably didn't happen. Nobody addressed the fact that my husband just left me. Nobody addressed the fact that I'm 200 pounds and started jogging. Maybe just maybe that's why my knees are starting to hurt. Nobody's talked about dietary and the fact that I've given up any hope on reason to cook because it's now just me and my 11 cats. So none of that works. What if we change that? So I'm still 49 years old. I'm 200 pounds. Husband left me. I'm jogging. I'm not eating right. And apparently I live with 11 cats. What happens if I come in now and walk in? or maybe, you know, my rascal, whatever gets me in the door. I don't have to schedule an appointment. This hasn't been put off. I can just come in. And immediately when they greet me, they see, hey, Donna needs to talk to you, a wellness coach, because we've got a couple of things going on right off the bat. Colon cancer screening guidelines have changed. So we need to get her connected with an MA who knows these protocols. We'll let her go in and see the doc. 
but we probably should be teeing up our exercise physiologist and our nutritionist because we can see from the record, Donna was 160 eight months ago. This isn't good. Now, when I come out, now everybody also has learned that the care team has learned that my husband left me. And that was the, the triggering point. The model that I built, you can actually take care of that patient, me in that case, leveraging exercise physiology, nutrition, licensed clinical social worker, a host of MAs. It's a high touch environment with the physician and being more like a conductor of an orchestra versus the one man band. There's no way a single provider can do all of this. And we're so scared to add all that support staff. The support staff is big in this model. Yeah. And that's, you know, going back to your earlier point, this is the model now going back to that payer partner who you've hopefully established a good relationship with to fund that because the traditional model, that's why we're scared, right? We can't afford to have all that staff unless they pay us different. There's two things that I looked at in this model. I first tried to figure out how could we get there in a fee-for-service world? You can actually get pretty close in a fee-for-service world. It makes zero sense. It makes it 10 times harder than you need to be. But if you could get an actual capitated contract, and I know people think about capitation and they think, oh God, that's a lot of risk. It's not necessarily a lot of risk. So here's the math. We'll pay any of your payers, whether it's Blue Cross or Regents or United, Pacific Source, any of them. They know the math. How much did you pay me for my practice over the last year for these patients? Is it, is it 50 bucks per month if you had just given me a check? And I'm learning the more I get into this, it's actually closer to about 40 bucks per member per month. Really? For primary care. So here's the value proposition. I don't think you can build this model for less than 50 bucks per member per month. So to get that extra incentive, from the payers, you have to be able to bring something to the table. What are you going to cut out? And there's a lot of fluff in medicine. And your physicians and your nurse practitioners and PAs can tell you all about it. Pediatrics, you know it all too well. One of the things that I'm sure you struggle culturally with, with your patients is, I need an antibiotic. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. No, you don't. It's viral. I've got Yelp on my phone. I need an antibiotic. <laughs> it's a hostage situation. Uh, at that it is. Point. But there are, there's expensive drugs that could be done with lower cost drugs. And then there's just pure unnecessary drugs because we're afraid of Yelp. I think there's a lot of stuff that we're going to have to do with our payer partners to be able to get that PMPM up to that $50 mark. Could you trim down the services? Absolutely. So this model, just so you know, and your listeners know, This is set up with four physicians, two nurse practitioners or PAs, 32 MAs. Yeah. So right now, all your CFO fans are going, yeah, Donna's smoking crack. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Then there are six, what I call certified ancillary. And Mm -hmm. it's just a category because some of them are licensed, some of them are just certified. So that is your RN, who's a wellness coach, your RN, chronic disease management. Again, it's that conduct the orchestra type of thing where they've got MAs working for them to make sure their diabetic patients are getting the care that they need without having to go in and see the doctor every six months for an A1C. Right. If they're controlled, help them stay controlled. If they fall out of control, 
and you have a protocol that helps get them in control, like, hey, A1C is fluctuating too much or their sugars are fluctuating too much, get them in to see the nutritionist. Do I need to have a doctor? Do I need to have an MD, DO, NP, or PA tell me that I need to eat better? No. I don't. I don't. We have to figure this out because we've got to be able to take care of our doctors and our other providers. Models intense. You don't have to start all that way. You might be in a geographic area, for instance, that would benefit for a PA to come in because you see a lot of suturing mm-hmm. or splinting or dare I say casting. We used to do this in primary care. Yeah, we did. And there's some, some age in there. There's some great things we can do. You don't have to start with the whole thing. You don't have to go hire 30 MAs, right? You Please, God, don't do that. <laughs> there, there is a ramp to this, but the ramp is based very specifically on what your patients need. That makes sense. It's a very, how do I say this? It's Instead of the one-man band, it is the team-based, patient-focused. It is. And ramp. think about it. How much more healthcare could we deliver if it didn't all have to funnel through a very expensive and very scarce resource. Absolutely. We could do a lot more. I love it. Donna, we could talk for hours on this. Yeah. (laughs) Cowboy this thing up. I know. It just takes getting on the ramp though. That's the first thing is just getting, getting on the ramp. That's where I'm at right now in conversations with a payer and trying to demonstrate that there are some clinical things that we're doing that are worth attention worth their attention and not trying to ask them for a better conversion factor, not trying to ask them to pay for anything too crazy. We're, we're coming to them. We're also not trying to do more work. We're just trying to paint a picture for them of the really good things that we do that aren't RVU based, that don't end up in a fee schedule. Right. It's a start. It's the very beginning of the ramp to what you're If, if you believe you can get there, you can get there. Yeah. And I think so many people that I've come across, it's, yeah, that's just not going to happen. I'll just take the fee-for-service con. That's all they're offering me. If you don't ask for something different, you will not get anything different. And it's not going to be easy. If it was easy, we'd already be transitioned to, to pure value-based reimbursement at this point. And no way. It's incredibly difficult. Well, Donna, like, like I said, we could talk for hours on this. I'm going to transition us to our next part of the, the interview. And so for our listeners, Donna's going to be back on in the next episode. We're going to be talking a little bit more about actionable ways to build your healthcare network. But I hope that this episode kind of got some of the creative juices flowing for, for our listeners in how they might do something a little bit more, how do I say this, a little bit out of the norm, but, but better for their patients. Hopefully there's something out of this that they can pull. I hope so. Ah, Donna, thank you for being here. And for all of our listeners, before you go anywhere, hit the subscribe button, leave a review if you enjoyed the episode, and we'll see you in the next episode with Donna. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Medical Management Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's featured guest. For the show notes, transcripts, resources, and everything else MedMan does to help you level up, be sure to visit us at medman.com. Thank you.